Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of uh, inviting to the podcast Dr. Lauren uh, uh, Prescott, who is in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Lauren was also one of our uh, former fellows here at MD Anderson. So it is obviously great to see you and, uh, and, and great to have this discussion. The topic of this discussion is going to be on a recently published manuscript uh, titled Transfusion Use and Effect on Progression-Free Overall Survival and Quality of Life and Upfront Treatment of Advanced Epithelial Ovarian Cancer Evaluation of the European Organization for Research and Treatment, the EORTC, 55971 cohort studies. So Lauren, thank you so much. It's great to see you. Thank you for joining us on, on this podcast. And uh, once again, congratulations on this publication. Thank you, Dr. Ramirez. Great to be here. I'm back in the hot seat, like a fellowship. <laughs> and great. And, and by the way, you don't have to call me Dr. Ramirez. <laughs> so uh, Lauren, obviously, this is a really interesting uh, topic. And, and of course, um, we, we do have um, background in the literature with regards to the use of perioperative blood transfusions in, uh, in the setting of cytoreductive surgery and ovarian cancer. And there's been some proposals with regards to, you know, the, the potential adverse events in the, that occur as, as a result of blood transfusion, including also potentially an impact on cancer recurrence. So I think this is a really great topic for, for our discussion. And I wanted to, to start um, to hear from you as to why perioperative blood transfusions are an important factor to consider in the management of patients with advanced ovarian cancer. And, and often, how, how, how frequently do these patients receive blood transfusions in the setting of surgery? Yeah, so patients with advanced ovarian cancer are at very high risk for perioperative transfusion. And you know, our previous literature reviews have suggested that up to three quarters of patients may actually receive a transfusion around the time of surgery. Um, and I think for a long time, there was this perception that blood transfusion are kind of a benign intervention, but we know from other published studies that blood transfusion are not without cost or risk. And particularly, you know, now that we're after COVID and having these massive issues with blood transfusion shortages, you know, I think this is a very critical issue for our patients. Yeah, that's great. And, and you're absolutely right. Um, uh, COVID did bring up a lot of these uh um, issues back up to the surface. And, and um, when you were looking at, at evaluating this topic on this study, uh, what was your hypothesis for, for this study? Um, why was this your hypothesis? And if you can tell us a little bit about study design and the, uh, the endpoints as well. Yeah. So, um, you know, we know from other studies that anemia is associated with lower quality of life. Therefore, we sort of hypothesize that transfusion would, would potentially increase quality of life. Um, and then there's also some mixed data about the impact of blood transfusion on progression-free survival and overall survival. So we hypothesize that we probably would not see an impact in PFS or overall survival. Um, our study was an unplanned secondary analysis of Vergoat's clinical trial in which patients were randomized to primary debulking surgery versus neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And our endpoints of interest were progression-free survival, overall survival survival, PFS, and um, I'm sorry, quality of life and adverse perioperative events. Yeah. And um, you mentioned also that you were evaluating quality of life. I was wondering if you can just speak a little bit about the tools that you use to evaluate quality of life 
And also uh, an important element in any quality of life evaluation, how often were you doing these evaluations? Yeah, so we, you know, we were limited based on the data that was used in the original trial. So um, we used data from the EURTC QLQC30, which was used in the original trial. Um, and surveys were collected at baseline at cycle three, six, and then six and 12 months follow-up. Great. So now let's um, let's first get to the, the results of the study and the main take-home messages, and then we'll go into some of the more specific uh, details, and we have several questions about that. So what were the results of the study? Um, so, you know, our study showed that um, there was not significant improvements in quality of life in the patients who received a transfusion. Um, we saw that there was a high prevalence of perioperative transfusion in this cohort of patients, both in the primary debulking surgery and in the neoadjuvant chemotherapy groups, um, and that um, there was some differences in the two cohorts. There were certainly, this was an unbalanced study because this was a secondary analysis, um, but that there was no impact on PFS or overall survival. Yeah, it was a really interesting to see. I mean, I guess not surprising that 53% of patients received uh, intraoperative blood transfusions and 13% and uh, postoperative transfusions. Um, so one of the uh, uh, questions that, that we had as a group was, how do you consider that, you know, certainly unbalanced rates of optimal surgery between the two groups could have impacted your, your results? Um, in other words, I guess, you know, if, if a patient has a much more aggressive surgery versus le less aggressive surgery, how could, could that have impacted the results? Yeah, so you're, you're correct. You know, our, our studies, our groups were definitely not balanced. Um, there was only 26% of patients who had no gross residual disease in the no transfusion cohort compared to 42% who had um, no gross residual disease in the transfusion cohort. And in the Vergoat study, complete set of reductive surgery to no gross residual was the strongest predictor of overall survival. Um, so, you know, that sort of begs the question, or is part of what we're seeing because of this unbalance in optimal tumor reductive surgery? You know, I would say because it's the group of patients who had transfusion that you would expect to have that has the higher optimal tumor reductive surgery group, you'd expect that group to have better outcomes. So the fact that we're still not seeing any difference in PFS and overall survival suggests to me that there may still be some impact of transfusion. But to account for this difference, we did do a multivariate analysis looking at just those patients that had optimal tumor reductive surgery. And so in just the patients who had optimal tumor reductive surgery, in the univariable analysis, transfusion was associated with worse overall survival, mm -hmm. but that difference did not persist into the multivariate analysis. So, you know, since patients who have optimal surgery are more likely to have better oncologic outcomes, it's possible there's a detrimental effect of transfusion that we're just not seeing because of the unbalanced nature of our two groups. Yeah, that's uh, really well put. Uh, thank you for, for explaining that. Um, Lauren, one of the other things also I wanted to talk about, and I'm curious with regards to, you, you know, you certainly, uh, you mentioned that transfusions and the literature tells us that transfusions are associated with higher rates of complications. And I was curious, what sort of complications did you encounter 
Um, and also you, you mentioned something um, called transfusion-related immunomodulation. Um, can you tell us uh, what that is? Sure. Um, so we had looked at uh, venous thromboembolism events, cardiac arrhythmias, hypotension infection, as well as mortality. Um, those seem to be most of the complications that have been reported on in previous studies that, that seem to be impacted by transfusion. Um, and the proposed mechanism of these transfusion-associated adverse events has been attributed to alterations in the immune system. And some of this data comes from, from, from outcome semen transplant patients, as well as animal models that show that blood transfusions can suppress natural killer cell activity, induce suppressor T cells, decrease function of macrophages, and alter antigen presentation. So it's been postulated that perhaps these cellular changes are the underlying mechanism for the adverse events that we're seeing with increased infection, VTEs, cancer recurrence, and mortalities, and, and previously reported studies. Great. So, Lauren, now we uh, move on to some of the questions from the uh, fellows uh, of the journal. Uh, sometimes the, 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 those invited to the podcast say uh, th those are some of the more challenging questions. <laughs> so the first question is uh, from uh, Gabriela Schivardi from uh, European Institute of Oncology in uh, Milan. And her question is, it is my understanding that the data on preoperative hemoglobin level uh, were not available. Um, do you think that this might have an impact with regards to the rates of uh, transfusions that were given in this setting or, or in the setting of cytoreductive surgery overall? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think current best practice is that we shouldn't be using hemoglobin as a trigger to direct our transfusion, and we should really use the clinical picture, such as hypotension, tachycardia, symptomatic anemia to dictate transfusions. But I think in practice, that's not often the reality of what happens, um, and, and we often do use a hemoglobin trigger. And also the decision to transfuse is a shared decision between the, the provider, the patient, and the anesthesiologist. And so there may be cases in which the surgeon is comfortable operating at a lower transfusion, but your anesthesiologist is not. And mm -hmm. so hemoglobin can sometimes definitely be an important factor in the decision to give blood or not. Great. Um, next question comes to us from our fellow in uh, Ukraine, Alexander Shushkevich, uh, and he asked, and it may be challenging to answer the question from a, a, a you know secondary analysis. Or based on your knowledge, what was the major factor for a significant difference in the size of residual tumor in the transfusion compared with no transfusion cohort? Yeah, so you know, I think as we alluded to earlier, you know, there's more patients in the transfusion group that had optimal tumor reductive surgery. So there's more patients in the transfusion group that have more complex surgeries. So all of the surgical factors that we looked at were, had higher prevalence in the transfusion group. So specifically lymph node dissections, splenectomies, bowel resections. So, you know, I sort of suspect the higher complexity of surgery leads to higher EBL, which subsequently leads to higher transfusions. Yeah. Um, back to uh, a question from Gabriela. Um, she asked that the perioperative complications seem to be more frequent in, in the patients that have transfusions. In your opinion, um, are these complications somewhat or directly related as the, 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 the cause or the consequence of the transfusion? So I think Gabrielle hits on a very important item related to study design. 
So this is an unplanned analysis um, and it is retrospective. So we can show associations, but we cannot demonstrate causation. So although transfusions associated with an increased risk of perioperative complication, my data do not prove that transfusion is the cause. And there's definitely multiple other confounding factors and variables um, that can play into the, the rate of increased complications. So we try to control for those things to answer that question, but I think you definitely cannot you cannot imply causation from retrospective analyses. Yeah, very important point. Um, I, I think that somewhat related question, uh, this is Sarita Kumari from India, and she asks, is it possible that the higher rates of surgical site infection in transfusion groups could be due to other direct factors like anemia? Yes, absolutely. So yeah, I think we we can show associations, but we can't show causations and we can't truly identify causations with retrospective studies. Yeah, <clears throat> important point again, and something that uh, I uh, I highlight to, to the fellows in the journal as well, that many times in looking backwards, uh, even though the questions are important, you may not just be able to capture that information from, from the, the, the data set that you have. Um, this next question, Lauren, comes from Harris uh, Theophanakis uh, from Greece. Um, he asks, what about the number of fresh frozen plasma units administered in a transfusion group? Um, could that be another factor impacting oncologic outcomes? In other words, not so much the, the blood transfusion, but mm -hmm. other factors. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, red blood cells have been studied a lot more than than FFP and other products that are administered in the operating room. Uh, but absolutely, you know, FFP could definitely impact potentially impact PFS and overall survival. You know, in our study, the, the prevalence of a platelet transfusion or FFP transfusion was pretty small. Um, so although more patients in the transfusion, the blood transfusion group did get FFP, those numbers were still pretty small. So um, that ended up getting excluded from our multivariable analysis. Very well. Um, another question from uh, Alexander. Um, do you also have data on how blood transfusion was associated with a treatment delay? Um, in other words, what was the major factor of the delay, cause of blood transfusion or complications after blood transfusion? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have access to this data. Um, you know, I think, again, that it's a, it's a great question and it's one that's hard to answer. You know, when you have a cohort that has higher rates of transfusion, but also higher rates of complications, it's hard to know kind of which is the one that's truly leading to the treatment delay. Yeah. And then I think, you know, Sarita, uh, the next question asks uh, something that we routinely ask our um, guests for the, for the podcast. And, and, you know, she, she refers to the fact that given the retrospective nature of this evaluation and some of the missing details about transfusions like hemoglobin, blood loss, anticoagulation, the number of transfusions given, how can we apply the results of this study to our clinical practice? In other words, after you completed this study, um, how do you apply this in your own practice? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think there's definitely limitations of all retrospective studies and unplanned analyses. You know, what I really hope the audience takes away from this paper is the lack of benefit of transfusion. So whether or not you, you truly believe our increased rate of complications or the no impact on PFS or overall survival. What I'm showing you is that there's actually no benefit. There's no improvement in quality of life. We're not seeing any other benefits in this manuscript. So, you know, my goal was to kind of question 
the dogma of traditional practice that more is better and transfusions aren't harmful. So what I hope the clinician reading this paper, you know, next time that they need to transfuse somebody, maybe they pause and question whether it's truly beneficial and warranted. Yeah. And I think also probably gives you a, a, a little bit more force to uh, have that discussion with the anesthesiologist. Yeah. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> yeah. So, um, Lauren, as a, as a last question to uh, to the podcast, uh, this one's actually from Arthur Shue. Um, the your, multiple publications show that uh, blood transfusions should be scrutinized, and you just mentioned that. Um, can you share with us how do we, in our own hospitals, improve uh, blood transfusion programs? Um, perhaps how do we implement quality improvement programs to hopefully avert some of these complications? Um, so I'll give you a little historical context. So when I did my residency, I, I, I trained at an institution that had a very sort of robust restrictive transfusion program. Mm -hmm. um, and so we had decision support, you know, it, it was sort of embedded in the culture that blood is potentially harmful. And so when I went to fellowship, I, I went to an institution that had a very, very different culture and different climate. And I'm sure Dr. Ramirez remembers me as a young fellow, you know, sort of wanting to, to impart my ways in a group of, of you know, 26 G1 oncologists that have been practicing a certain way for a very long period of time. And so, you know, some of the initial feedback that I got was there's not enough data in G1 oncology to say that transfusions are harmful and that we should change our practice. And so I've really sort of set out over the last eight years trying to provide some of that data so that I could convince people that perhaps we should rethink how we practice. So um, so that was really great advice that I was given of, you know, if you believe something, but the data is not out there, then you need to find a way to get that data out there. So, you know, part of um, in sort of doing a quality improvement project is one, getting a sense of what your home institution, what the culture is like and what the problems are there. And so I would say if you're, if anybody is sort of interested in taking this on, you know, look at your own data. There's now a lot of data out there about what the national transfusion rates are. You know, where does your institution lie? Are you guys way above that? Are you in par with that? Do you have a problem? And then if you do have a problem, get a multidisciplinary team together. And, you know, we published on our quality improvement project at Anderson. Um, the Mayo has also published on a, on a similar restrictive transfusion protocol in GUN oncology, and then build this multidisciplinary team, kind of look at your data over and over again, do these PDSA cycles, um, and see if you can kind of impact change and be patient because it often can take a very long time. Lauren Prescott, so, so <laughs> such a pleasure to uh, speak with you. Thank you for that uh, mentoring advice that you gave as well in your uh, closing remarks. Um, really, again, um, uh, absolutely pleasure to speak with you to discuss this topic. Uh, thank you for submitting the manuscript to our, our journal. Thank you for your time in, in this discussion. And uh, we look forward to further discussions. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.